All right, so uh, here for another cutting room floor uh, in the Advent series, kind of looking at Matthew and him looking back to the prophet Isaiah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And wanted to unpack a little bit about Isaiah 7, how that relates. For sure. How do the... How do these authors even pick verses? Yeah. How do they take them from the context they're originally said and have them make sense? For sure. In yeah. the life of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we're referring to is Matthew chapter one, kind of the famous Christmas story. You know, Joseph has the vision dream from the angel and is told that, you know, Mary, Mary, uh, you know, you're going to have a son named him Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. And then Matthew gives this sort of parenthetical comment in Matthew 1, verse 22. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And he's referring to Isaiah, because in verse 23 of Matthew 1, you more or less have a direct quote, which says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And if you kind of, even if you have your English Bible out, you can just look at the little kind of subscript or little, you know, probably a letter there that will give you to the footnote at the bottom of the page. It's saying this is a quotation from Isaiah 714. Uh, what's interesting, though, is when you jump over to Isaiah chapter seven, even when you read, just say the first, you know, 20 verses of Isaiah seven, you know, at least for me, I read that and go, how did Matthew get anything related to Jesus from yeah. Isaiah seven? So Matthew sort of, you know whatever he's he's writing mm -hmm. the gospel and he has this whole old testament yeah and he's like you know what <laughs> this jesus this dream this yeah. birth oh isaiah 7 uh, yeah that's I mean, it. emmanuel god with us i mean yeah. i can I, on that level i can see how there's yeah. some connection yeah. right and you're talking about jesus and the theology behind sure. this is the embodiment of god being yeah. with his people but there is an original context there's an original context like I, isaiah probably wasn't imagining yeah. Jesus totally. being born in the yes, first century. Yes, totally. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's part of what I want to, you know, let's kind of talk about that a little bit and maybe just kind of work through uh, some big picture stuff as far as the context of Isaiah 7. And then, again, maybe try to do our best to see, like, okay, what perhaps is Matthew thinking as he's writing this in light of what we can understand yeah. from the context of Isaiah 7. Yeah, and, and obviously in this, we're presuming God's inspiration of the scripture. Totally. This isn't yeah, yeah. just like some dude making it up. For sure. But we are trying to do our best to understand Okay, so what's going on in the, in the mind of this human? Exactly. Uh, both Isaiah and Matthew. Matthew. As they're speaking and writing. For sure, yes. And trying to figure out, okay, how do these texts make sense? How do they make sense context? of each other? Yeah, so maybe just to, you know, big picture, start with a little bit of uh, context with Isaiah 7. So in the beginning of the chapter, what's happening is that Israel, and one of the texts referring to Israel is referring to the 10 northern tribes at this point okay. in the biblical story. Yeah. Uh, Israel, whose king, his name is Pekah. Can I just stop? So there's... Yeah, yeah. Two different sections, right? So you have the northern yeah, tribes, oh yeah, yeah. you have southern, southern tribes. tribes. There's uh, some hostility coming from yes. the east, coming west. Yes, yes, yes. And there's prophets yes. in northern and in southern, southern Israel. Israel saying, hey guys. Pay attention. Pay attention. Repent, basically. Trouble's on the way. Yeah, totally. And Isaiah is primarily talking to the northern. To the northern at this point in the story. And so there's reference to Israel, the ten northern tribes, who have a king named Pekah. And then Aram, another nation kind of neighboring Israel at the time, okay. whose king name is Rezin. And these two, Israel and Aram, have made this military alliance. Okay. Uh, Israel at this point in the story, again, this is just the ten tribes, is becoming increasingly weak. Uh, Israel and Aram are making this alliance to at attack Judah. Now, Judah is the southern uh, 
portion of what generally people think of as, as Israel. But these are yep. the two tribes in the south of the in the land of Israel. Because after Solomon, there's yeah. a few kings, and then eventually they start to, 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 to split, basically. To split up. Yes. So they basically have two nations. There's two nations within what most of us probably are thinking Called of as Israel. Israel. Yeah. But Israel proper in this instance is the ten northern Correct. tribes. Yeah. Judah is the two southern tribes. Yeah. Um, you even see there's a little hostility within God's people right now totally. because Israel with a, another foreign nation is making this military alliance against basically their own brethren, mm -hmm. Judah in the south. Uh, Judah's king is King Ahaz, which will be fairly significant as we kind of unpack this. Um, and so that's kind of the early first couple lines in Isaiah 7. When you get to like verse 3 and following, God gives assurance through the prophet Isaiah that Judah would not be destroyed from this military alliance that's coming basically from, from the north. Rezin and Pekah, these two kings, are described as smoldering stubs of firewood. Hmm. Kind of just great kind of yeah. prophet language it's there. It's kind of how you imagine you'd want to be described. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's like <laughs> kind of giving this assurance, like, you know, don't be worried about this yeah. military alliance that's yeah, forming, it's nothing. threatening, it's they're just going to be basically chaff in a, yeah. in a fire. Um, Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 7 7 that within 65 years Israel uh, will be completely destroyed and so again referring to the 10 tribes yeah. and we know this actually to take place yeah. the 10 tribes they're the first ones that kind of get wiped out more yeah. or less so by Assyria kind of like saying don't worry about these little guys yeah something way bigger is coming it's when, exactly way yeah. bigger is coming um, and so then Isaiah who's the prophet right so he's you know not the book of the, of the Bible we're referring to but he's also the character the right. main he's prophet both the author and the prophet more, yeah yes exactly so Isaiah challenges King Ahaz and again remember King Ahaz is the, the king of the southern tribes mm -hmm. Judah he challenges Ahaz to remain in this posture of trust he says quote if you do not stand firm in your faith you will not stand at all so there's Again, you can just imagine being a, a leader in this position. There's threats from the north. Yeah. Isaiah, the prophet of God, is challenging Ahaz to trust. And then Ahaz, in verse 10 and following, is told to ask for a sign. And this is where we're going to get into some of the Emmanuel stuff. And which is kind of interesting because he's told to ask for a sign. And then Ahaz actually says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign because I don't want to test God. Mm. And we know from other parts of Scripture, when you go back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, which Jesus actually quotes himself, yeah. do not put your Lord to God. It's not a bad idea yeah, to say no to Put that. your Lord to God yeah. to the test. But there's kind of some in the languaging, and it's yeah. kind of implied that the reason Ahaz is doing this is actually from a posture of distrust, almost mm. discounting what Isaiah previously just said yeah. about don't worry about this military alliance that's coming. And so what was intended from Isaiah for Ahaz to ask for a sign as a sign of seeking trust yeah, or a sign of developing ins assurance trust, assurance, exactly, Ahaz doesn't. Um, but then what, what happens, though, is interesting is that even though Ahaz says no to you know, asking for a sign, the text come back, comes back th uh, through the prophet Isaiah and says, either, regardless now, no matter what you did or no, did not do, you, God's still actually going to give you a sign. And this is Isaiah 7:14, the passage that the verse that Matthew quotes. So Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now remember in the context, it's Ahaz not wanting to ask for a sign, but God's going to still give one anyway. Isaiah writes, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then it goes on, he will be eating curds of honey when he knows enough to reject the right, or, sorry, to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy, so referring to this, you know, child, before the boy knows enough to reject wrong and choose right, the land of the two kings, so again, the, that northern yeah. alliance, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring uh, the king of Assyria. Now, so again, clearly, like when Isaiah is writing this and God is giving this sign, 
Like they're not thinking about the first century. Totally. Oh yeah. They're thinking like something happening right now in yeah. the kind like of military, political, on, yeah. social context that's happening right now. So whatever Isaiah is imagining, and we can talk about how this how the prophets and the writers of scripture, how yeah. there's some connection to the New Testament in a moment. But just on a face value, you know, reading right now, clearly, and again, it, we don't necessarily need to pick apart all the details right now, yeah. but something is happening in this context yeah. six, seven hundred, eight hundred years before the yeah. time of Jesus. So that word from um, Isaiah and then mm-hmm. ultimately from God is for Ahaz. Yes. To say like, here's a sign for you. There's a sign for you. So there's a primary context in which those words are written. Exactly. Yes. And so the question becomes, okay, so who then is this baby, this son referring to? Now, there's a kind of maybe a knee-jerk reaction for us as Christians to go, oh, this is Jesus. Yeah. Right? And so maybe people might take that approach, which is, you know, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. That's what Matthew seems to do. Um, but again, I, and I'll kind of push on that in a little bit in a second. But again, there's something happening here. Who would have Isaiah thought? Who would have Ahaz thought? this baby that would come from virgin was to be? Were they thinking someone hundreds of years in their future? Or were they more than likely thinking someone within the next, you know, nine months or whatever, a couple of years? And even contextually, right, the sign is for Ahaz. The sign is for Ahaz, yeah. So it doesn't completely make sense to just say this is only talking about something that's going to happen centuries later, 700 years later, more than likely. And so there's debate within kind of Old Testament scholarship as to who exactly, you know, this son is. So kind of the two primary candidates. Who's the virgin and the son. Who the virgin and the the son is, exactly. So the two primary candidates are either Hezekiah, so the kind of the next king uh, to come. And what's interesting about the Hezekiah route is that when you go to the second king, the description of Hezekiah says that Hezekiah, Second uh, Kings 18.5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Yeah, he was a part of kind of a resurgence. Resurgence, exactly, that. right? And so you kind of think of it in context, Hezekiah bringing kind of this deliverance or this yeah. salvation uh, in the um, more or less immediate context of when Isaiah is writing or, or declaring uh, these things. Uh, kind of uh, the other... I guess, option, if you will, is that if you have Hezekiah on the one hand, perhaps if you kind of keep reading into chapter seven into chapter eight, Isaiah's own son is mentioned and he has like the, it seems to me like the longest name in the Old Testament, <laughs> Mahel Shalah Hashbaz. Do you know so, what that means? I have no idea what that okay. means. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it wouldn't be hard to, to, to find out if I looked it up yeah. or not. But it, it clearly means something. There's no, yeah. you know, when they have a long name like that, <laughs> there's something going on there with yeah. the name. But the point here is that there's more or less two, you know, reasonable options as to who this son is. Yeah. Um, and then especially you keep going in Isaiah. By the time you get to Isaiah 9, you have that famous passage of, of again, that son who would be born with that would have the the government would be upon his shoulders kind of that again that another famous yeah. christmas passage from isaiah 9 but taking a step back i think the the main point that we're trying to make here is that there's an immediate context to what isaiah is talking about yeah and then the question becomes how then does that relate to how matthew is looking back at isaiah yeah. 7 and when he's looking at the birth of jesus in matthew chapter 1 yeah well i'm even thinking about it like like there's the one side of like, how do you find it? The other one I'm thinking is like, they don't even have a Bible. Yeah. <laughs> they have scrolls. Totally. So he's like pulling out scrolls. Yes. Right? You're totally. Just yeah, like, yeah. How do you, how do you even do that process? If you're talking, are you talking about like Matthew? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you just think, and the, part of this is like, it's thinking about how these texts, and it, and it seems to me that for someone like a Matthew, 
um, and we'll get to this in a future conversation, where multiple times, I think it's five times in the first couple of chapters, Matthew says something to the effect of, this happened to fulfill X, and mm-hmm. then he quotes something from the Old Testament. And even how Matthew starts his gospel with that genealogy, which to us is kind of like boring reading, yeah. but it's just anchoring that story in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And it's a reminder, at least to me, of how much the Old Testament mattered to these New Testament writers, and how these stories and these poems and these prophecies were just kind of like the bread and butter of what we might consider like their media of the day. Mm. And how for when Matthew is looking back and kind of narrating and then eventually writing the Gospel of Matthew, what we know as the Gospel of Matthew, it seems to me that he somehow has Isaiah 7 kind of floating in his brain, if you will. And so what I think is happening, and again, people kind of debate kind of the exact nuance of this, is that when you look at it like big picture... It seems to me that there is, yes, 100%, a, a near immediate fulfillment of what Isaiah was prophesying in Isaiah chapter 7. So maybe in general we can say, like, with the prophetic text, mm-hmm. there is an immediate context, yes. generally, generally, yeah, that it's speaking to. Exactly. But maybe that's not the only context. Totally, yes. And I think we even get glimpses of this when Peter writes in the opening chapter of his letter is that the prophets carefully inquired about this salvation. And Peter makes this reference to, yet they did not fully understand even what they were themselves mm. writing. And so Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is kind of giving commentary, if you will, on some of the prophetic works mm. of the Hebrew Bible and making this kind of point. I think that's what we're, we're trying to make here is that it's not that they're, to ignore the Old Testament historical context, but to also recognize that this is, you know, the inspiration of scripture, this is, you know, God kind of over history sort of a thing, where that what the Old Testament writers are talking about has a near and a far fulfillment. Yeah. Uh, I've heard it described kind of like when someone's looking out at um, a mountain range out in the distance, it's kind of hard to see exactly how far that peak is in relationship to the peak right behind mm. it and then the peak to the you know yeah. the left of it. That's good. And so it, there's clearly mountains that are closer yeah. to you wherever you're standing and there's clearly mountains that are farther. But sometimes it's hard to tell exactly which peak in the distance. Especially as they get farther off. Exactly, yes. And so I think something is happening yeah, here um, with some of these prophetic texts. And at the same time, I think this... I want to actually kind of unpack a little bit on what we mean by like prophecy and fulfillment a mm. little bit, because sometimes I think we think, okay, so there's like this prophecy and there's going to be this X literal fulfillment. And that's only what we're talking about. I think another way that sometimes, you know, people think about this is through like this lens of typology mm. and what all that really kind of means is that you have this narrative perhaps in the old Testament or this figure in the old Testament. And that, not that Matthew is saying that this Isaiah 7 is exactly corresponding to what's happening in Matthew chapter 1, but think of it more or less like there's a similarity that's taking place. Mm. So the similarity would be like in Isaiah 7, there's a moment of calamity, of uncertainty, there's a moment of kind of difficulty and a need for a mm. rescue, and that there's this promise given that there will be this figure that will be God with us, with mm. God's people, in kind of the hopes to bring some sort of rescue and deliverance mm. in that immediate context. Got it. And so Matthew, when he's kind of looking back at the Old Testament, he's reflecting on his interactions with Jesus, he's putting together his gospel and inspiration of the Spirit. Isaiah 7, it's not that he's just cherry-picking, but he's kind of by way of analogy, we might say, looking at the birth of Jesus as this Isaiah 7-type moment. But I think for him, he's making the case this is like the ultimate Isaiah 7-type moment. So it's like, the okay. Like, would you say... I think in your sermon on Sunday, you also talked about how 
in Matthew 1, there's this sense of beginning. Yeah, totally. Like yes. the beginning of Jesus, and it's sort of like a type of beginning. Of creation, creation. in Genesis so like 1, yes. Genesis 1, you have creation, and now you have this like new creation. Yes. Burgeoning. Exactly, yes. I think that's a great way of looking at it, because I think the Genesis 1 example, we're kind of not having to deal with the, the like explicit prophecy fulfillment language, yeah. but we're able to then kind of more set that aside for a moment mm. and see sort of this... Almost like patterns is mm. kind of another way to look at it where you have God creating, you know, from think about like of a womb, like mm. inside it's dark mm. and God bringing life to a place of darkness, at least physically. Mm. And so in a similar situation in Matthew chapter one, you have, you know, you read through the whole Christmas story in Matthew's gospel. It's Herod. There's kind of terror. There's darkness happening. Yeah. It happens at night and God sending his son, Emmanuel, as like a new creation light. So there's like parallels yeah. Yeah. that are happening there. And it helps us to, I think, at least for me, gain not only a deeper appreciation of these stories, but also to make these connections to mm. see God has been working like this throughout human history, yeah. but it finds its fulfillment. It's like it's filling the whole story mm. up to a sense mm. in the person work of Jesus. Mm. And so that as like one example, Genesis yeah. 1 and 2, think about in a similar context with Isaiah 7. If Isaiah 7 is like a container for what does it look like for God to show up in the need of a moment of rescue yeah. with like social political chaos? If there's like a container or a bucket for that, Matthew chapter one is essentially in, in some, more than it's doing a lot of things, but in this context is like expanding that bucket, if mm. you will, using kind of the same pattern and language where now Matthew's saying like what happened in Isaiah chapter seven, God is going to do something like that. But I think even to a greater degree. So like, could there be a way in which, you know, Tim Mackey and the Bible Project, mm -hmm. they talk about like hyperlinks. Yeah, totally. Like in some ways, like in Matthew chapter one, and correct me if I'm wrong, no, like no. he's actually like providing totally. the hyperlink yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. versus just saying, oh, you know where to go. Exactly. Yes. Whereas like with the beginning language, it's like, oh, no, no, you know where to go. Yeah. This one, he's like. Let me give it to you. Yes. So, yeah. So I think this is where, so like Mackie's helpful with this. I think Richard Hayes, where he has like his books, so the he echoes, talks about like echoes. echoes and illusions. Yeah. And so I think perhaps like the, the Genesis would be more of like an echo slash illusion okay. where it's not like an explicit quote. Yeah. Here in Matthew 1 verse 22 and 23, this is more of like a direct quotation. I yeah. mean, it is a quotation. Yeah. Um, but all of those, whether it's an echo slash illusion and or quote, in like Mackey's world would be like in that bucket of like hyperlinks. And he calls it sort of design patterns. Design patterns, exactly, right? So you have these patterns of like God bringing rescue in Isaiah 7 or God bringing light in darkness in yep. Genesis 1 and those patterns continuing throughout scripture okay. and then really seeing their fulfillment, that same kind of design pattern, if you will, here in Matthew chapter one, Got both it. with the God bringing light and darkness or creation in a place of, you know, where there was, was no life. Yeah. And then also God bringing salvation or rescue in a time of calamity and or distress. So like, do you imagine Matthew, like he's reading Isaiah, you know, he's probably memorized it. Yeah. Like, yeah. This has happened before. To yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Virgin child, Emmanuel. Yes. Oh my gosh. And there's, yeah. And this is where it's interesting where it's, I love the, the exercise of like imagining what some of these New Testament writers were thinking, what was going through yeah. their brains, because, you know, we don't have like video camera footage of them writing in like in a dark yeah. cave. And I don't think we're meant to think that they were zapped by 
you know, like the God machine and they're just in a trance. No, they're using their brains. They're using the resources. They're using eyewitness accounts. Inspired by the spirit. Inspired by the spirit, which I think we have to understand that what it means to be guided by God's spirit does not mean you lose your mental. It's not a hostile takeover. Exactly. exactly. It's God working through humans. Again, that's a design pattern, how God has always worked. Partnered with humans. Partnering with humans. And to see that this is how God has designed, not only how he wants to work in the world, but how he has designed scripture. And it's, it's really seeing the beauty beauty of the human and divine partnership mm. in what we call holy scripture sacred scripture and really seeing I, to me it's just fascinating to think about whether it was like a light bulb moment for yeah. him or he was just meditating on Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9 and yeah. seeing these connections kind of over a long period of time or Jesus talking or about Jesus it. talking Jesus about opening it. the scriptures right? exactly the road to he obviously he must have done that with his disciples totally yeah he's just connecting dots and they're like For sure. Totally. And I think what's interesting, this is a little bit of a a side tangent, but I remember uh, reading a book recently where the author C.H. Dodd was talking about how there's like four or five like main Psalms and other Old Testament passages that keep get popping up within Mm. the New Testament writings. And his basic point was like, where do the New Testament writers who are all different, you know, Peter, you know, Mark, you know, John, Paul, why are they all quoting from basically these same five and others? Because Jesus really liked well, them. Because Jesus really liked them. Because there must have been his like kind of kind of theory was like, and it's interesting to think about. He's not like being dogmatic. Yeah. Is that at some point these texts for Jesus were really important? They were passed down yeah. to these New Testament authors. So it's just interesting to think about. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, when you have like those forty days post resurrection Acts chapter one or yeah. the road to Emmaus, what were those Bible studies like when Jesus clearly opened up the scriptures yeah. and kind of narrated his approach to looking at what we call the Old yeah. Testament? So. That's cool. I mean, there's a lot here, and I think in the kind of the next segment, I want to take a little more time to look at, because this is one out of five, this uh, Matthew chapter yeah. one with Isaiah seven, one out of five times where Matthew's explicit about this was a, basically a quotation from mm. the Old Testament. Cool. And almost all five of them, you look in the Old Testament context, and you're like, I would, not, I would never have gotten Jesus yeah. out of that by myself. Yeah. So kind of let's talk about that, and what does yeah. that mean for us? Cool. So. Thanks, man.